So like I feel like we're we're associated with like a problem. We're so like the term is associated with like a threat. Um, with the criminals, rapists, <laughs> yes. not the oh best. My gosh. Imagine if we had someone um, that like was constantly brave. <laughs> Welcome to the Nuestro South podcast. This is where we talk about being Latinos. Y también Latinas. No, no, no. Latinx. In the South. This is for us, y'all. The history in this episode is based on the book Corazón de Dixie by Julie M. Wise. My name is Axel. My name is Daisy. And I'm Brian. We're Latinos in the South, and we are your hosts. Now, today our episode talks about what it means to have ownership over your identity. As individuals, we have various identifications in regards to race, ethnicity, class, cultural, nationality, and many other things. And throughout the course of these podcasts, we will be exploring the history of a particular group, which are Mexicans and also immigrants in the U.S. South. And a lot of these different identifications come into play. And today, our topic is about identity. So our conversation starts with what Mexican means, how identity meanings shift and are shaped by the context we live in. So to first start this conversation, before we get into the nitty-gritty history, um, so Brian and Daisy, how do you identify in terms of culture, identity, ethnicity? Well, I definitely identify with the term Mexican, so it's really illuminating to see the way that that term, um, the definition of that changes based on who gets to um, decide like what it means. I also identify now as um, a first-generation like college student. I identify also as Latina, which is different from mm-hmm. identifying as Mexican. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of the identifications that I carry with me um, every day. Uh, for me, I identify as Honduran-American. Uh, I'm also like a first-generation student. Um, for me, it's like really important, uh, just because, uh, growing up, like you don't really think of all the labels until like you have to like somehow like stand out from everyone else, uh, either by choice or not. Um, so for me, it's like Honduran American, Latino, uh, and I feel connected to certain groups because of these identifications. I guess we're all kind of young as well. <laughs> oh yeah, we're young. Um, well anyways, to get into the history, um, this is the first episode that's going to highlight kind of a, a trajectory of, of what Mexican is, what Mexicanidad, what immigrant means, and particularly in the South. And our first story and context starts in New Orleans. And we're talking about the 1910s to 1930s, a period of migration to this basically Gulf Coast city. And so how did Mexicans end up in New Orleans? And Brian's going to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, the time period here is like uh, around like 1910 to like the 1930s. So between a revolution going on in Mexico to uh, World War One and Two in the U.S., uh, many uh, Mexicans and other immigrants are like traveling by boat across the border, um, and like during this time, uh, border security things like that were not like as like tight and like locked down as it is, as it is now. Um, just because like no one really saw Mexican immigration as a huge national problem as most politicians were more worried about European immigration at that time. People would like come on boats as workers, uh, get lost in the city and just like never go back and just start completely new lives. And I think, um, it's important to note with like the whole, like the revolution going on in, in Mexico that, Although a lot of immigrants were leaving because they were getting, like, displaced because of, like, the 
the problems a lot of them were just simply disturbed by the upheaval that was going on and and decided to leave and and the the immigrants that were ending up in new orleans were largely those that were from coastal states in mexico as well so it's kind of like like you mentioned it was um convenient to be able to get on a boat and go over to new orleans yeah yeah so so exactly what what was new orleans like for those uh mexicanos mexicans coming in then uh so uh the distinction that we do have to make with like certain port cities like the difference between like uh like some of the gulf of texas to like louisiana and new orleans is that some people were a lot more open to the idea of like different cultures coming in uh specifically like new orleans has had like a history of like french and creole and spanish culture like already there during like colonialism uh so when mexicans and other immigrants came um it wasn't that there wasn't like a huge resistance to like accept them and then also during this time uh a little controversy was um the u.s still trying to like debate and like figure out um what they wanted to do or how they they would react to their policies on like mixed blood or race and so in regards to this experience could you give us an example or a story of someone who who went through this. I mean, I don't think any of us even know that there were people in New Orleans who were Mexican at that time in 1910s, 1920s. So what does the story of a person going through that look like or sound like? Uh, so I could tell you about uh, this man named uh, Robert Canelo who came to the United States in the 1920s and who went to kindergarten in the U.S. Uh, he wasn't like excluded from being like of a darker skin and like mexican uh he just went he just grew up like any regular i guess like white person would in new orleans um because there wasn't like a huge um there wasn't a huge like setback for people that look like him because he didn't have to argue about like um being white or being black um eventually he uh, actually enlisted in the army and that's like around the time he actually gained his citizenship and um there weren't too many obstacles for him really uh he just had to like enlist um he had kids uh he worked without any problems so so at a time when being black and being white meant such different opportunities and such different life outcomes in the United States you're saying like Robert Canedo and was able to kind of like go the the white route in terms of life opportunities and, and outcomes um was this the case for like a lot of like the immigrants were they were they able to take advantage of the benefits and privileges that came with being identified as white and were they actually referring to themselves as white uh so i guess another really important thing to answer that is the whole idea of all well, the whole like just existence of like uh jim crow laws at this time um because when those are first like put in place uh no one is really thinking like oh where do we put mexicans and people from latin america um they were thinking uh are you black or are you white and depending on what side of the line you land on um that's how we're going to treat you in places like uh arizona or texas um like they were treated as black as farm workers but in louisiana where um trade with like latin american countries meant like more business and more money coming in uh people were a lot more open to the idea of like seeing mexicans as like not as low as like black people would um mm, i think you raise a great point so you're saying this idea of trade and business 
and behind that is the Mexican government. So these like Mexican immigrants had the backing of a sovereign government kind of like watching over them in a sense and um just being there and, and I guess and being uh an advocate for them and and making sure that their the image wasn't destroyed that the Mexicans were seen um in in a worthy light I guess by by um United States uh yeah um I guess more specifically like uh consuls like the whole idea the whole uh establishment of a consul uh one of the biggest ones especially during this era was the mexican consul in new orleans um who would basically like take that take on that job of like uh sort of like a guardian for mexicans and their image in the u.s and that didn't mean like um always like going to courts or making like huge like um just like movements to do this it meant more like advocating for them in newspapers uh for like jobs and um giving them access to like other resources. Yeah, so so they were creating a a kind of European white compatible culture which could mingle in. Um one other interesting aspect that I, I saw in a little bit of this history that we explored is that uh and, and a great quote quote from like the what we read is there was no barrio. Um there was no I guess the translation for barrio is hood, right? And so there wasn't a way to single out and point fingers to this is where the Mexicans are. And and that, I think, has some question of like where these people are coming from in terms of the class or what jobs they were working. Correct? Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, so like with this image like being built um, and like no barrios like existing at all, uh, it was, social mobility was like a lot easier for a Mexican growing up or like starting a life in New Orleans. Um, uh, and by that, I do mean like they could live wherever they want, get any job they want. Um, they were seen as like contributing members of society um, because of like the image that they had in New Orleans. Yeah, I think that's an important point. You said that they could get, they had access to like a lot of different types of jobs. And I think the fact that they weren't being kind of like sectioned off into oh you can only being able to access low skilled um jobs or these kind of like physical like labor um type of jobs they were able to access like blue collar jobs and i think that's largely because like how we mentioned previous previously a lot of the immigrants coming weren't necessarily like poverty like stricken immigrants they were immigrants that had had a comfortable status a comfortable life back in mexico and so then i think it was i think the occupation part is key to how they were able to like insert themselves and assert their compatibility with european whiteness because it's not like all of the immigrants that were coming over were white passing or had like fair skin or could pass off as white it was more so that they came in asserting we can do the same types of jobs that you can do and our culture and our mexican identity is compatible with your european whiteness and that's what i think made made the difference into them not being residentially like segregated and um and having access to those opportunities yeah so so this is you know kind of the history of where we find some interaction of u.s policies i mean there's previous one in terms of uh mexican the mexican uh, american war with the u.s um but this history is where we find peoples entering this binary of black and white and then the kind of balancing of where do they fit uh, in regards to New Orleans. Now, for us, what is 
what does Mexican mean in our time, in our period, and how has this shifted? Well, I don't want to say it first because I'm 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 curious to know like what what are your experiences <laughs> with the term like Mexican? What does it mean to you when you hear it, or what are your experiences? Um, I I will admit, um, I like even though I feel like I openly identify as like Honduran American, and I tell everyone I have Honduran parents. Um, most of my life I have been called Mexican, like <laughs> in school, uh, in like public, in like um, the DMV, even. They say you uh, speak Mexican. <laughs> yes, speaking Mexican. Um, it can get really, really like frustrating, annoying, like very quick. Um, so, not that I have anything like against Mexicans in any way. It's just like anyone would feel very. Um, anyone would feel lesser if they were called something that was just like outright wrong about them. Um, because like you want to take pride in like where you're from, uh, and you don't want to take, uh, on one side, you don't want to take credit for like something that you didn't do. Um, and you want to be yourself. Like there's like some value in that autonomy, uh, when you were growing up and trying to figure out what you want to do and who you are <laughs> and like where your family comes from. Um, so yeah, that's my experience. What's your experience, Daisy? Well, I mean... What do you I obviously I <laughs> think I'm I'm like when I hear Mexican I'm like yes like <laughs> pride like proud no but but th- I, there's no ignoring the fact that at this point I think we can agree that Mexican has taken on a sort of like derogatory term in in many ways especially with um like political rhetoric um yeah, the fact that a lot of, like, immigrants and Latinx identities get clumped together into the Mexican, like, umbrella. But it also suggests, like, when you think about, like, the problem of, like, immigration, people automatically think of, like, the problem of, like, Mexicans. So, like, I feel like we're we're associated with, like, a problem. We're associ- Like, the term is associated with, like, a threat, um, with, like, criminals, rapists, <laughs> yes. not the oh best. Oh, my gosh. Imagine if we had someone um, that, like, was constantly braiding that. And, and, and it's, I think, as a Mexican, as someone who, like, I, I am proud of, like, the term and, like, I want to be proud of the term. It's kind of, like, this ongoing kind of, like, having to fight against. Like, I feel like, in a way, there's this implicit, like, sense of having to fight against what others are defining the term. Like, other, I feel like other people are defining the term for us. And I think that that's a, uh, difference in what we saw like in new orleans the fact that because maybe because they had the backing of the mexican government more so they they were able to shape what mexican meant and here like now i feel like it's not really we're not getting to shape it as much as others are shaping it for us by saying they're criminals they're rapists they're a problem they're a threat and and they're Today, there is a national narrative. There is a national, I guess, story. And there com- there are competing narratives. Uh, but nonetheless, I think the one that sticks out most to us it are the harmful ones. Because it's like you said, Brian, it's the ones that really, in a way, kind of can make you feel lesser and kind of put you in these boxes where you, where you might not even belong into. And so uh, Back in this time, you know, 1910, 1920s, 1930s, uh, there was still those negative ones. And they existed in, in California and Texas. And those are very harsh conditions. But, you know, we are kind of looking at a time where where local context mattered, where, where local kind of 
uh, culture, where local local government, local econ- economics of the place um, mattered. And so that's what the opportunity to go to New Orleans had for those Mexicanos there, for, for them to create this culture. But it is so much more difficult to do that, like something like that today. I mean, even me having the conversation, like, okay, let me explain. This is... This is speaking Spanish, not speaking Mexican. <laughs> you know, even as a kid, as a, like I would do it as a joke, but you know, in a way, you were responding to something that has permeated a lot of like our society or a lot of our interactions, which is kind of just it's tiring. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now we want to take a little break and give thank you to our sponsors. This podcast is produced by Ricky Hurtado, Eric Valera, and Julie Wise, with generous sponsorship from the Whiting Foundation, the University of Oregon College of Arts and Sciences, and Latinx Ed, edited by Dorian Gomez. Now, I have two little stories to share with you. One is pretty simple, but I had this nickname in Honduras in the years that I lived over there. Uh, So when I was born, both my parents were much more wider let's say uh definitely uh we're getting real right here and so so you know we're from honduras and like anyone who you saw there would probably be very tanned or something but like when you're born and you're a baby at that time i was white white and i Mm -hmm. believe i had like my eyes were some color and so that's kind of how i grew up but then all these uncles they started giving me a nickname like while i was growing up as a little kid and that nickname was gringo come galletas de chocolate for some reason, because... Well, Wait, can why, you say that again? Gringo come galletas de chocolate. So basically, gringo, which means white guy who yeah. eats chocolate cookies. So I don't know why the chocolate cookies, but that's, you know, one simple story. And it always kind of stuck with me. Um, but my other story was, uh, like, a few, like, five, six, seven years ago. Um, so I used to go to church a lot with, uh, basically, adults. And I actually played the drums for, for a bit. And so I was always with this uh, one guy. He was a friend, but he was older. He was like uh, late 20s, 29, 28. And <clears throat> this was Alamance County, so it was definitely much more rural. And it was a lot harder to be driving around with a license. And this man got pulled over like six times. And not a single time was he actually like taken. Like he would get, he would just get like, just like warning. be careful. Wait, did they, warning. Give him a, they didn't give him a ticket or a citation. No, no not even that. <laughs> no. So there was it was so there's like a, a couple of times. So um, there was one time it was like he had no a car with no heater, so he would be always driving when it was cold and it was very foggy, mm-hmm. and so we'd be scraping off like the the ice or the frost on the windshield and be like looking through a little sliver as we drove, <laughs> and then one of those times we got pulled over and the car was like hey are you drunk or something and all that stuff and we we're like um, no we just can't see <laughs> but anyways the, the story was that this happened to him all the time but because but what happened one time i was with him and and it's kind of a pretty real story because i was with him on the passenger side and then on the on the rear of on the back seats there was someone who had actually just gotten out of like detention uh, for like he had been detained for three months because he had been pulled over because of you know driving without a license yeah. and so we were, we were driving on the interstate and what happened was that we're driving by and there's like a police car driving by us 
and I'm on the passenger side, and I, I like wave at them. I'm like, you know, it's just normal, just wave at the police car. And so we keep going, and then the police car like gets behind us, and we were like, oh no, this is not good. And so he goes to the next lane, and the police guy goes to the next lane right behind us, oh and God. like we're like freaking out. One of the guys just like actually got our attention, so we were like actually concerned. And then so we like take the first exit back, pull into like a uh, the first gas station that was to the right, and then the police car is still behind us, but then just drives past and goes oh to the McDonald's. God. So you know it's one of those times where it's like it's real. You laugh <laughs> about it in hindsight, but the uh, adrenaline was pumping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So I'm curious. With the story of Robert Canedo, you said that he was able to, you know, integrate himself um, into like school systems, join the army and do um, things that, you know, were reserved for like the white like lifestyle. Um, what what happened to him? Like, did he ever have to struggle with his Mexican identity and taking advantage of all of these white opportunities? Um, did he have kids and how did they grapple with that? Uh, so this becomes like sort of like funny, sort of interesting that um, his life was sort of like story wise, his life was sort of short. Uh, he uh, he survived World War Two. He came back to work a regular life. Um, Ganelo married a white woman named Hazel, had kids. Uh, and in school, whenever there'd be like anything like, uh, hey, where are you from? And they'd say, oh, our, like my dad's from Mexico. Um, people saw that as like a curiosity the same way that anyone would say like yes i was born in like hawaii um or people... my family is irish yeah you know, it's something yeah. that's, that's yeah, yeah. distanced mm-hmm. yes yeah, something that's distant and like not um it doesn't categorize them like right there on the spot so so they didn't have to be identified as mexican if they didn't want to be yeah mm-hmm. would we would we be able to do that today well, I think it's you know we 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 spoke about this a little bit um, just a couple of minutes. It's 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 a difference because, um, I guess I could feel this a little bit with with Spanish. I I think some of you or those of you listening could kind of uh, understand what I'm saying. Uh, in terms of continuing or or containing your Spanish, it's it's a way for you to hold on to maybe those roots or or that like history, that ancestry. Um, but with that, we don't always have control over it. Even with our language, uh, what we get taught in school, we don't have control over how it's taught in school. And so in regards to like, if it, let's say a, a person who is Mexican, in regards for them to retain Mexican, I feel like more than anything, they're just having to, like you said earlier, just defend the Mexican identity that, that they have and that they want to own versus like, you know, this competing assumption narratives that are trying to be imposed on them by like some national narratives whether they be positive or negative because i mean the 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 model minority narrative that is imposed on youth who are educated and like assimilated and now speak english and spanish is also one that is like imposed on us and is not one that we have control over mm-hmm. yes oh my gosh yeah um have y'all ever actually um uh has your parents ever like complained about y'all not knowing like as much Spanish. Yeah, especially okay. when I go back, like to visit my mom, she's like, "Oh, like look who's speaking Spanish." Like, <laughs> like, wow, she's still speaking Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and like um, 
I that like totally blew over my head until you said that. Um, because like uh, for me, like I spend most of my childhood like in school, as like my mom was like working most nights, and uh, like I didn't I didn't like really attach it to my heritage that much. Um, and like now, like being in college, like I think we meet like a lot of people. Like I, I can see a class roster and see like, oh, Gonzalez, that's like a Spanish last name. There's another one of you here. And um, and you meet them, and sometimes they may or may not like speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And like um, at like face value, you're like, oh, this is so disappointing. Uh, but you can't really be mad at that, really, yeah. um, because again, that was like not in their control. Uh, and like, um, I think it's like so wild that uh, in this like pursuit of trying to like assimilate and look for a better life, sometimes the only thing you are left with is like your last name. Um, that like yeah it ties you to your heritage and that's it's like the only reminder of like what it used to be I guess like what used to be what what was your the identity that started I guess before it, it got molded by all these different encounters yeah and and you know these are trade-offs that you know we as I guess being more aware of these constructions of of Mexican or immigrant or whatever uh, we're aware of it and we try to kind of come against them but a lot of times if what your goal is to to work to continue sustaining your family or to continue sustaining whatever goal you have as an immigrant or as a person that's not particularly you know the dominant culture population in the United States um, you just have to try and do the best you can and you can't always be conscious about like you know fighting back against these narratives and post of us uh, no yeah. because like you know there's day-to-day life and you know that's something that we have to understand um so to close up i wanted to you know pose a question and say um would you make the choice to abandon your cultural identity uh, for whiteness or for what is dominant wherever you are and um what are the spaces that we still do that? You know, there's a question that's like, if something was offered and if access was offered, if licenses were offered to us who are maybe immigrants and undocumented, what are you willing to do? And what um, what compromises are, are we making now or willing to do later? Uh, so thank you for listening and let us know what you think about this episode. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like our Facebook page, which is linked in the description below. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.